who's here on site. Good to see you. Everybody who's at home, hope you're relaxing with your coffee, your feet up on the coffee table. And everybody who's having wine and cheese wherever you are, it's so nice that you're all here joining us. I'm just going to make two quick announcements if I can remember them. Uh, Amazing Place is collaborating with St. Paul's to have that savvy caregiver virtual training sessions uh, for caregivers of people with Alzheimer's or dementia. It starts Tuesday. It's 11 to 1 every Tuesday for six weeks. If you want to sign up for it, of course, to get the Zoom link, you'll need to contact Amazing Place. Okay? It's a fantastic course I hear, very helpful. So you just need to either go to the website or call Amazing Place. If you are here on site, there are a few flyers in the back. Okay, everybody good on that? Yes? Where? There's an email address, but I don't know if there's a registration. Okay, great. There is a reg- at, at Amazing Place or is where you can register online. Okay, super, super. Thanks so much for that info. Uh, secondly, Ordinary Women is... Uh, collaborating with Boynton Church to try and establish an after-school music program. And, uh, yeah, it would be fabulous. As you know, Boynton Church is our fellow Methodist church in the Third Ward. And you know what we're hunting for? Musical instruments. Those, that guitar in your closet that you meant to take up during the pandemic, but didn't quite get to it, or that old recorder that your child had 20 years ago, or any musical instrument, we're looking for them. So if you'll look in your closets or in your extra bedroom or whatever right now, we'll have more details about how we can get those instruments from you soon. And the only last announcement is we are still collecting financial donations for worthwhile causes, so don't forget to go to the, you know, drop something in the brass plates at the doorway. And that's it from me. I'm going to turn it over to this great couple here. Couple. Couple. Wow. Hello, honey. Hi. <laughs> I took my girlfriend out for dinner Friday yeah? night. Did you tell her about me? I didn't tell Sherry either. <laughs> okay, I have a, I have a, an announcement. <clears throat> I had hoped that Ordinary Life would be able, I put this in the preview that went out, I had hoped that Ordinary Life would be able to um, have groups of people who would watch Conspire's last, this would be Richard Rohr's last um, conference, which is September the 24th, 25th, and 26th. <clears throat> and Diane Schinke, who's not here today, uh, was going to head up the organize that, but the, her reading of the website said that it did not look like it was possible to do small groups. You can look at it and you might change your mind about that. But if we could organize something so that as small groups we could attend this, this would be Richard Rohr's last conference. It's going to be virtual, there's no in person attendance. I think registration, therefore, is kind of unlimited. And the speakers are people that you have either met in this room or you have heard us talk about over and over and over. One of them is Jim Finley. One of them is Barbara Holmes. One of them is Jackie Lewis, who was here with us during the pandemic. Brian McLaren is going to be one. Um, 
and, and Richard Rohr. So it's September the 24th, 25th, 26th, and you can gain more information by going to cac.org. Easy to remember, Center for Action and Contemplation.org. So I'm thinking that if um, we could work out some small group thing that Ordinary Life would pay for registration yeah. for that. Yeah, if I'm, I don't see why we couldn't just project it. Well, Diane said it didn't look like from the website that that was a possibility. So if somebody is more technically skilled than either of Diane or me, then uh, if you look at that and come back we next Sunday just, and say, hey, we could do this, that would be great because I think it would be a good thing for us to do. We could look at Richard until he agrees. Mm -hmm. yeah. But he's not in here yet. Yeah, he would be someone we'll to, to ask about that yeah. too. Yeah. Father Richard Rohr has influenced me in a lot of ways for a long time. I've quoted him a lot. I've been so glad to um, have met him, to have been engaged with him, to not only attended conferences, but also to have attended a male right of initiation program uh, that he uh, does. Um, so there were two other guys, Josh Went. Um, Dean McKenzie went from this, this group to go. So I just have the most admiration for, for Roar. And if anybody is looking for a, a book uh, to read that really will get you grounded in the kind of spiritual practice and discipline, his book, Everything Belongs, is probably his most popular book, although he's written a shelf full of mm -hmm. books that I would recommend. Okay. So... We dedicate this time today to our growing understanding and acceptance of who we truly are, growing in our understanding and awareness of who our neighbor is, and learning to love them as if they were us because they are, and growing in our understanding and skill in relating to the mystery that not only contains all that is and all who are, self, other, and mystery, so that we can know that better. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, yeah. you are welcome, welcome here. here. So last week, we gave you an assignment. <laughs> Remember? Oh, a lot Don't of blank look at faces. Me like that. <laughs> last week, we used as a, a launching pad a story that Jesus told about a man who stumbled across a treasure hidden in a field. And we sent you out with the invitation to be open to discovering treasure. So how did you do? I want you to notice the rush of hands that go up into yeah. the air. <laughs> we'll, give you, we'll mail you your grades this week with comments. <laughs> what? <laughs> I didn't hear that. What? That's harder than I thought. Yeah. It's harder than you thought. That's a beautiful prayer. If you didn't hear it, it was, show me what I can't see. Yes. Yeah. Lucas. I didn't What did you find? Presence. Presence? Yeah. Presence, awareness. It's a great gift. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. And I discovered the field, the forest, before the forest was littered with the remains of cicadas. And it may seem like ooh, bug, but it was a representation of the cycle of life like I've never seen it before. And I decided to make an artwork out of the cicadas that I smuggled back. <laughs> so if we get a cicada outbreak here, we know who to talk so, to. <laughs> since, since, since we're going to have a mic on him, can you paraphrase what yes. he said? Uh, being in Maryland and seeing all the carcasses, really, of cicada shells, you know, we're in this 17-year cycle of cicadas emerging mm. and bringing some home to make an art piece. So we'll see what you make out of that. Maybe a, a coat with cicada shells. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, one of the things that has motivated me for much of my life has been trying to figure out a couple of things. First, is there a treasure map that I can use? Something I could use to guide me on my quest for what at the time I referred to as peace of mind. I don't use that phrase anymore. And the second thing that has guided me is by observing those people whom I have concluded to have found the treasure. I've been very curious about how they did that and, and uh, what they had done to have it for themselves. And I think this searching process has been very, very fruitful for me. One of the, the most important things I have discovered is that by simply embracing other people's beliefs, and mimicking their behaviors is like trying to quench a thirst by drinking sand. <laughs> you can't ape somebody else's authenticity. That doesn't work. But I do think that there are several characteristics that mark people who have found the treasure. For one thing, they have a quiet sense of confidence about life and about who they are. Their identity is lodged in their being, not in what they do and what they have. And they have come to know that their ego is not who they are. They're compassionate people. One of the hallmarks of the spirituality of Jesus was his ability to be inclusive. And being able to practice inclusivity in the world begins by being able to include all parts of oneself. And this cannot be done without having a daily spiritual practice of some kind, a willingness to go within. And for me, this has been involved uh, in being able to work with my, my dreams. That's been incredibly important in my own growth and development. And also being able to work with my projections and transferences. All the relationships we have with other people, with our intimates and strangers alike, is marked by these two things, projection and transference. A projection is when my psychological contents, mostly unconscious but also conscious, 
leave me and enter the outer world seeking something, usually a person, upon which to fasten. As I said, um, we do this not only in our intimate relationships, but we do it with politics, political parties, politicians, media stars. We do it with our pets. <laughs> so my dog doesn't really love me. I think your dog probably thinks you're the food god. <laughs> yes. And that's, uh, the, so that's an important thing yeah. for the dog. <laughs> and the other dynamic, also unconscious, is transference. And transference is when I transfer to someone else my personal history in regard to the kind of experience I'm having. Hmm? Hmm. I know exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> That's transference. That's transference. Or the assumptions we make about what other people think, about their motivations, and, and all that stuff. We can give this also to... Um, Media stars, our pets, our partners, our church, our government, and so forth. But what happens in the transference process is that we relinquish our adult responsibility. And one of the hallmarks of the spirituality that we're trying to communicate is a grown-up spirituality of mature people. So that um, when we are involved in active transference, we, we avoid we comply, we try to control, we do everything except just be with what is. So people who found the treasure that we are talking about are growing in their ability to be free of these two things, to be aware of them first and not to be caught by them. When we assume that we know exactly what someone else is thinking or why they did what they did, Projection and transference are actively at work. People who have found the treasure are also people who have an attitude of gratitude. This is why I encourage you to keep a gratitude journal. They're comfortable with solitude and silence. They don't have to have the TV on all the time. They don't have to have the radio on all the time. And um, at least this is true for me in my evaluation of others. Uh, it might not be true in your experience, but these people who have found the treasure are joyful people. They're happy. They smile a lot, like the Dalai Lama, like Thich Nhat Hanh. They are just joyful. And I have come to the belief, uh, now that I'm much closer to the end of my life than in the beginning, that the reason for this is these people are not afraid of death. They know that nothing lasts. And that attempting to hang on to things and people keeps them from um, changing and growing. Um, trying to hang on to things is like trying to jump into a lake and swim with a 500-pound rock tied to your feet. <laughs> Those people who most fear death are the ones who most fear life. Life carries all things away, and the ego craves stability and permanence. So the people who found the treasure don't cling. They, they, are allowed, they, they, they don't cling to anything. They don't cling to anyone. And when we're free of the fear of losing others, then we're able just to sit back and be. We can become like a mountain spring that's always fresh and sparkling.
So the checklist that I use to see how, if, and where I'm growing, um, or not, is short, it's simple, it's gloriously complex. Am I growing in my ability to experience and express peace, love, joy, patience, and humility? Now, there's good news. There's treasure to be found. I hope you find it today in here. It's here. It's right here. Um, as a matter of fact, I think if you can't find it here, you're not going to find it anywhere. And is that true for no matter where you are? Huh? And might that be true for no matter where That's you are? That's true for no matter where you are, but you can only be here. That's right. Can't be somewhere else. <laughs> Although, usually we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got that, right? <laughs> That's the problem. We're not here. We're either out in the future or we're in the past and not in, in the present moment. So, um, there is more good news. And there is in a parable that Jesus told that we're going to deal with that parable today. Jesus said, the father's imperial rule is like a merchant who had a supply of merchandise. And then he found a pearl. That merchant was prudent. He sold the merchandise and brought the, bought the single pearl for himself. That's uh, in the Gospel of Thomas. It's also in Matthew, but that's... In Thomas. This is the way that Eugene Peterson translates it. <clears throat> God's kingdom is like a jewel merchant on the hunt for excellent pearls. Finding one that is flawless, he immediately sells everything and buys it. Now, I want you to notice the difference between the parable we dealt with last week and this one. In the parable of the treasure that was found in a field, the man stumbled over it accidentally. He wasn't looking. He just found it. But in this parable, the merchant is deliberately seeking for something of value. Um, he's looking for the pearl. Your screen, your screen says on the hunt for excellent heirs. Well, it should um, be pearl. That's and, funny. Uh, my proofreader pearls. disappeared. <laughs> oh, me. I forgot to check that one. <laughs> Sorry. Um, one interpretation of the pearl of great price is that it represents Jesus' death on the cross and his sacrifice for our sins. The sacrifice, our salvation, is the pearl of great price. But this can't be the way that we continue to translate or we can't stop there if we want to broaden the understanding of Jesus beyond substitutionary atonement or individual salvation. When I Googled this last week, the Pearl of Great Price, this is the first thing that came up from a site called Biblical Answers. (laughs) Be careful what you Google. Um, (laughs) Eternal life, the incorruptible inheritance, and the love of God through Christ constitute the pearl, which once found makes further searching unnecessary. Christ fulfills our greatest needs, satisfies our longings, makes us whole and clean before God, calms and quiets our hearts, and gives us hope for the future. The great price, of course, is that which was paid by Christ for our redemption. He emptied himself of his glory, came to earth in the form of a lowly man, and shed his precious blood on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. It's a wonderful metaphor for transformation. And of course, what you hear us doing is trying to turn that on its head and say there are other ways to read this. 
I wasn't satisfied with this answer because it required a lot of Jesus, but not very much of us. So I kept searching. Next, I come up upon how often the pearl of great price has been used to refer to especially girls' virginity. Pope Pius XII used the phrase to describe virginity, and more often than not, it's young girls who are taught that their pearl is God's treasure, not to be given freely or carelessly. I was certainly taught that through cultural values, through different ways of learning. In purity culture, girls are often taught that they are the gatekeepers, the ones who um, preserve their virginity. So this also creates what we call permit... Sorry to use this term, but it's what creates rape culture. What did she do to allow that to happen to her? So, so often, young girls get the shame, the brunt of the shame, if their pearl is taken or given. There was something that I came upon called the cult of true womanhood that was prevalent among 19th century upper middle class white women. A true woman, it says, possessed piety, purity, domesticity, and submissivity, submissivity, I can't even say it. (laughs) I'm not pious because I question too much. I'm not pure because I swear too much. (laughs) I think I might be domestic, but I have a lot of help from my husband, and I'm not submissive. (laughs) So I'm not really a good candidate for this cult of true womanhood. This did not pertain to indigenous immigrant or black women because of prejudice social standing, and the general lack of personhood given to anyone who wasn't white. Forgetting, of course, that these same white women who were around in the 1800s were also descendants of immigrants. (laughs) So I found myself twitching a little bit when I read this statement about the cult of true womanhood. This is a magazine that was popular among this cult. The ideal woman was expected to act as a status symbol for men and reflect her husband's wealth and success, and was to create babies and care for them so that her husband's legacy of success would continue. But she was also seen as the angel of the house, whose purpose was to guide her family morally because of the perceived importance of the role. This ideology was imprinted on girls at a very young age. They were taught to value their virginity as the pearl of great price which was her greatest asset, and to develop the skills to manage a household and rear children, but they were also taught to see themselves as a pillar of strength and virtue who was key not only in providing her husband a proper image, but in raising boys who would later have a direct impact on the success of the nation. Some of those values are not bad, right? Strength and and wisdom and caregiving. But then you put that only in the very gendered role of what it means to be a woman, and it's limiting. So I wasn't satisfied with that explanation. It demands what? Oh, I mean, who knows? I didn't, you know, I, as soon as I read that, I was like, I failed. <laughs> I, I do not belong in this cult of true womanhood. <laughs> but again, this demands much of women in very gendered roles, but it doesn't demand much of our society to create wisdom, to create equity, to create gender inclusivity. So I kept searching. <laughs> um, I, how many of us have read The Scarlet Letter at some point in our lives? I read it in high school. I don't think I've read it since. But 
it's one of those images that stays with you, the scarlet letter. It's a common term. You know, the scarlet letter is a term used to describe um, something that has followed you, a shame that has followed you. So Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote this book in 1850, around the same time that the cult of true womanhood was in its full form. So he was thought to be one of the first transcendentalists who believed in the individual right to pursue spiritual transformation as opposed to, so apart from the largely Puritan society and the Puritan church. In the Scarlet Letter, when I read it, you're, you're, you're aware of the Scarlet Letter. Yes, what it means. Um, we still use it, as I said, to describe a stigma or a mistake that one has made that you drag along, right? In Puritan America, known adulterers really were required to wear a, an A if they had committed adultery to signify that transgression to the public. We still stigmatize single mothers who are some of the strongest people I know. And as well as women, we stigmatize women and girls for embracing their sexuality, for expressing it. Women are called sluts while men are called studs. The novel explores some pretty big questions and challenges the status quo. What is love? What is sin? Is desire evil? And who is to judge it? I'm not going to offer a lot of literary analysis, but I want to point out a couple characters. Hester Prine, who is the woman required to wear the A around her neck for the rest of her days because she's pregnant with the reverend's child, challenges this meaning, the meaning of the A, in many ways. Instead of a symbol of shame, she allows it to become a symbol of her identity and independence. And the reverend is not required to wear any visible symbol of his transgression and is able to keep his role in her pregnancy secret until he's racked with guilt on his deathbed and admits to being the father of this young girl. Hester gives birth to this baby, and she names her Pearl which is a direct reference to the pearl of great price in the parable. It's, it's a, in the book, it says, pearl, for she is of great price. So partly she names her pearl because having the child cost her so much, but also because she finds great value in raising her and being her mother. Pearl, in many ways, may better be understood as a symbol than an actual character. Yes, she's a physical consequence of a transgression, but it's also obvious in the novel that she's a sign of her mother's great strength and courage, her willingness to give up her ego, her possessions, to love and raise this child. She was deemed illegitimate, and as a mother of an illegitimate, illegitimate child, they were forced to live outside of the village. So they, they live outside, and they can come back to the village just for works of care and service. Hester does become respected for her needlework and her knowledge of plants and medi their medicinal value. And Pearl, her great treasure, grows up this free-spirited, wily young woman, unbound by the rules of the Puritan church. And she's sort of allowed to become herself. She also represents the conscience of the community who rejected her. So every time the community sees her, they're aware that they've rejected her, right? So this novel points out to us, and I'm not suggesting you go back and read it, but it, it, I just read the cliff notes this week <laughs> to remind myself of you know, what, what, what it was all about. But it points out to us how we so often reject and judge what we don't understand, what is unf unfamiliar or outside of the status quo. As Bill mentioned, we transfer our fears and our shame 
onto these people or things that we don't understand. Pearl's meant to challenge the reader, and she does. She's courageous, she's bold, she's artistic, outspoken, and some, she's ultimately someone we find ourselves wanting to be more like. But because we fear that we can't be more like her, we project that shame onto her. But she's this wonderful, multi-layered character portrayed with such, she's the most complex character in the novel. And our own pearl of great price is never a single layer. It's never just about our exteriority or what we look like. It's never about our virginity. But it's about how we reveal our inner nature with courage. Expressing her unbound nature is what I think it means to be found by God. Or as the title implies, one of the clues that Jesus has found us. What Hester finds in, in Pearl is that there's nothing, not a thing, that cannot be transformed by love. She learns to see that her daughter is not born out of evil, as she was initially taught. This is an evil child, born out of lust and desire. She learns, no, this child is, is love. So as she learns her daughter's spirit, sees how free she is, she says, throughout all there was a trait, a certain depth of hue, which Pearl never lost. She realizes that love is the most powerful antidote to shame. So I think that being found is allowing ourselves to be loved and be love in more free and open ways. And that's what I think Hester learns in Raising Pearl. So this, this parable that we're looking at is really unique in the collection of parables we have from Jesus because it is the only parable that we have that deals exclusively with a member of the upper class. There are upper class people in other parables, but they are always interacting with somebody of the peasant class. But here, this merchant stands alone. And um, the pearl, as Holly's just said, is a metaphor. It stands for something that is exotic, that is foreign to us. Sometimes you'll have a dream where you go to a country, another country. You're going, being invited to go to a place that is foreign to you. Or you'll have a dream in which there is a character, uh, maybe of another race or another nationality that's part of you that you're being invited to know, the part of you that's foreign to you that you're being invited to know. Um, the, the pearl is also a metaphor for wisdom. Uh, pearls appear in both the Hebrew and the Christian scripture as that which is of supreme value. Everybody in here has heard of the pearly gates, right? Mm -hmm. right? Which is okay as a metaphor until you get it that heaven is pictured as a gated community. <laughs> so, I'm on a quest. So are you. That's why you're here. That's why I'm teaching. And there is this wonderful synchronicity that's gotten us all together in this room like this together. So one of the great metaphors in all the great religious traditions is that of searching and finding. Jesus told a lot of stories 
about searching and finding. The one we dealt with last week, and we're going to begin taking a deep dive into what is known as a parable of the prodigal son, but it's really a parable about a man who has children, at least two children. Holly's going to contend more <laughs> when we what get to it. <laughs> and, and, and we're going to talk, uh, I, at least I plan to at length, when we get into that, that parable of the prodigal son, about um, this man who came to himself. Wisdom knows that we are both that which is searching and we are at the same time the treasure that is found. Mm -hmm. Both at the same time. Remember, we're walking this path of contradiction and paradox. So when we get to the phrase it's in the parable of the prodigal son about the son who, quote, came to himself, we're going to talk more uh, then about who we are. But for the moment, I simply say that all of our relational difficulties, from a quarrel between two people to conflict between nations, arises from the false, useless, unwise notion that there is such a thing as a separate self. This is not in my notes, but it will be next week or the week after that. In 1966, the spiritual teacher that I engage tried to teach me something that it has taken me years to get. And I'll say it to you, and um, I bet you don't get it. Some of you might, but this is not me sitting here. This is a part I play. I hope I play it with authenticity. But this is not the part that Sherry will want to see across the dinner table tonight. <laughs> That's another part. Consider the pearl of great price, Sherry. And what's tricky is that there is a role in here somewhere that I play that has as part of its script that it says from time to time, but this is really me. But that's still just a part. Hmm. We'll get there. Hmm. As I said, I didn't get that. I didn't understand that the first time. Yeah. As, as Holly has said, the pearl uh, is in the parable is not Jesus. Jesus did not talk about himself that way. Nonetheless, it is worth raising the question, have you found Jesus? Because the Jesus most people know is an invention that people in the church have created to meet their needs and support their values. Jesus did not share our values. His understanding of the world had nothing in common with our thinking. And the various doctrines and rituals created by the church, especially that of his atoning death on the cross, for our salvation as individuals, which you don't exist as, are things that the historical Jesus would never have recognized or understood. So it's important that we find the right Jesus. And I'm grateful for the scholars and scholarships that contemporary archaeology and historical research have provided for us. The Jesus defined, 
is the revolutionary Jewish mystic who is presented to us in the teachings of Jesus, not the teachings about Jesus. Further, this Jesus that we need to find is on the other side of any line we draw in the sand to separate ourselves from other people. Anytime a line is drawn, you can bet your bottom dollar Jesus is on the other side of it. I bet he erases it. Huh? He just erases it. He erases the lines. But we keep drawing them. Yeah, yeah, we keep trying. (laughs) You take a a spaceship up into, get in the space shuttle and look down, there are no lines. Mm -hmm. There are no lines on the earth. So two of the primary components that you will find when you find Jesus are forgiveness and inclusion. Our very divided, divisive, fragmented time and society really need these two things to be experienced and expressed. And we're the ones that have to do that, first in here and then out there. It is so ironic to me that so many of the people who want to insist that Jesus is the way, have created a theology where Jesus gets in the way. One of the reasons I want us to do, after we do the, gospel, uh, the, the, the parable, we're going to spend maybe at least three, four weeks on. I want us to, to do a deep dive in the Gospel of John for one reason I've never taught it. Well, neither have I. <laughs> we're on the same page there. I think that it will aid in our being able better to answer the question, have you found Jesus? One of the things that strikes me so much about as we're reading the John Shelby Spong book is that he's so clear that Jesus was very Jewish and that John is a very Jewish text. And so it's, I, it's really, it's, it's a great book. And if, if you start reading it, I encourage you to kind of read along as we go through John. The book is the fourth gospel, Tales of a Jewish Mystic. Yeah, the hair is tickling my face somewhere. Anyhow, (laughs) (laughs) um, the other thing I started researching was how a pearl is formed, an oyster that creates a pearl. I don't know what the writers of this parable or even Nathaniel Hawthorne knew about the formation of a pearl, but it's such a great metaphor. Um, First of all, pearls are the only gemstone that come from within a living creature. This is a creature with a beating heart. These words are so tiny on the anatomy, but it has a heart, and a pearl comes from that. Second, the formation of a pearl is the oyster's way of protecting itself from foreign substances. You can read that two ways, but I want to explain how I read it. When a perceived danger slips into the oyster between its mantle and its shell, it irritates the mantle. So the oyster secretes a kind of substance. So think of it like we get a splinter, right? Our body immediately reacts and it starts trying to get rid of the splinter. The oyster, instead of trying to get rid of the splinter, secretes this substance made of calcium carbonate, which is the same stuff that the shell is made out of, around the splinter. So it encapsulates this irritant. It's the same substance, the same nacre substance that's used to create a shell. Anyone wearing pearls today? Nope, my granny had a set of pearls. (laughs) Um, So I want to say this again. Instead of rejecting the splinter, the oyster incorporates it, becomes one with this pain, this, this irritant, 
It integrates it and produces something beautiful. The formation of the pearl is an act of healing. That's, that was incredible to me, to just sort of let that land on me. This knacker layering process can take months, so it can take six months, it can take up to five years. So rest assured that this transformation doesn't happen overnight. The pearl is not produced, taken out, produced, taken out, and produced, taken out. It's layer upon layer upon layer of this shimmery protective coating. And each layer is a part of this oyster story, a part of its progression. And some oysters rarely can produce two to three pearls over a lifetime. These are the ones that are cultivated, that are kind of maybe grown in oyster farms, and they can carefully dislodge the pearl. But many, many, so many oysters die after they've given their pearl. And the oyster that produces the pearl of great price, a large one, sometimes oblong, sometimes pear-shaped, as it's set up there, usually only makes one per lifetime. Here's something else really cool about oysters that I read. I had no idea. They are hermaphroditic, which means that they, they start their life as male, and they're male for about two to three years, and then they change to female in the last years of their life. So they integrate the splinter, the irritant, they also integrate their maleness and their femaleness. The oyster does not even have to think about creating a pearl. My son, we have a whole bunch of chrysalises in our garden right now. We have a bunch of butterfly-producing plants, and um, some have been eaten by birds. My cat, in fact, went up to one and just knocked it off. But she doesn't know. <laughs> Nevertheless, it, it, this, these, my son asked, well, how does the caterpillar know to make itself into a butterfly? And I was like, it doesn't. It just does. It just doesn't have to think about it. The, the, the pearl's the same way, or the oyster's the same way. It doesn't think about it. It just does. So I often mm. wonder, what would we be capable of? If we didn't think from our fears and our self-consciousness and our ego, but incorporated all of our experiences as part of the process of becoming whole. We could become healers instead of herders. If one interpretation of the pearl of great price is that the seeker is God looking for you, then what is to be realized about the pearl which is in you? It's something that you become over time. It forms within that hardened outer shell of our, what we might call our ego, our protective shell. In some ways, this guards us, what is within. So the ego is protective. It guards the treasure in some ways. But if we lead from it, we never actually produce the treasure. We never actually reveal it. So all the while, if our experiences, the good, the bad, and the boring, they all give shape to what is being formed within. And to dislodge this pearl from the oyster, the outer shell has to be pried open. And sometimes a little ligament has to be cut in order for that pearl to be extracted. So if God is the seeker, and I want you to imagine that for just a second, God is not a being, but being itself. So if reality is seeking us, God does not actually demand flawless perfection. In fact, in many places, the pearls of the greatest price are the ones that are the odd shape the oblong, or the pear-shaped, because they're unique. So nor does God demand from us flawless beauty. Remember that even the pearl in the center of our being wraps itself again around something like a splinter, around hurt and pain. It wraps itself around the experience of being hurt first and then creates beauty. Like Hester, I think Hester Prine in Scarlet Letter, I think we can learn to shape something beautiful out of our brokenness. 
She did not make. So Pearl, her daughter, is the symbol, the living symbol of her scarlet letter. But she becomes the most beautiful symbol of her life, the most treasured symbol of her motherhood. So this is a kind of mitzvah, a kindness. And seeking the pearl of great price within the hardened outer shell, our pain and grief is not repaired or removed, but it's integrated. The Talmud, the Hebrew text says, if someone is sick or in need and you can take a 60th of their pain, that's goodness, that's God, that's healing. So again, imagine what healing we are capable of if we allow our pearls, our capacity for healing, to be found. Uh, I have a favorite philosopher, among my favorites. I tend to be drawn towards the female philosophers because there aren't as many. Simone Weil, she's a philosopher, a poet, she was a social critic, wrote a book called Waiting for God. Her book is full of paradox and contradiction and hyperbolic reasoning, and she, she, really, she never attached herself to the church as a, as a nun or as a, um, as a mystic because she wanted and searched for God in the flesh, in the world, through direct experience. She thought the church was hypocritical and in danger of standing in the way of what she called implicit faith, our, our yearning, our own seeking, of being the seekers of the pearl. She also did not want to feel separate from ordinary people. She just didn't want to feel like she was other than the people on the street. The, the book is mostly her letters written to her dear friend, Father Perrin, who was a Catholic priest who implores her always to be part of the church. You need to be part of the church. And she keeps saying, dear father, no. And here's why. <laughs> the title, I think, expresses her deepest longing, to be found by God, waiting for God. And as she writes in one reflection, to be eaten and digested by God. She writes, we cannot take a step toward the heavens. God crosses the universe and comes to us. And there is no other proof of God but the universe itself. With the totality of all the reasoning creatures it has ever contained, does contain, or ever will contain, this is the native city to which we owe our love. This place, right here right now. So we may be waiting to be found by God, but it already surrounds us. It already consumes us and pours through us. Sometimes we're seekers, sometimes we're sought, and always it's going to be about prying open that hardened shell of protection and revealing our pearl. I think this got us started on thinking about this parable, the Meister Eckhart Book of Secrets mm -hmm. um, poem. We've if we haven't mentioned this book before, <laughs> it's called The Book of Secrets. And I, I, I forgot to mention that Adam told me that it's actually available for free, as a free download, as a PDF on Google Books. Is that right? Audible. 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 Free yeah, free audio. Here it is. The truth is all that matters, but it's hid deep in the darkness, a mystery so great and sublime that no words can hold it. So empty yourself of what you thought. You knew about it and trust the silence at the beginning and the end of thinking. This is where God waits to find you, the pearl of such great price that you must forget what you know and sell all you have to acquire it. Once you do, it is all you need. Nothing else matters. Hmm. So I finally found an explanation of the pearl that I was satisfied with. And I'm going to keep searching. 
So we are in the heart of sacred mystery, and sacred mystery is within us. Now, I don't know about you, but I am more often than not unmindful of this. We get distracted. We lose our standing. So these two truths remain out of sight for us. They remain buried. And we can stumble over them or we can go searching for them. Either or both at the same time. But if we reside safely in sacred mystery and that sacred mystery is within us, then there's nothing to be afraid of. There's every reason for joy that leads us to fulfill this, what I call, moral obligation to be happy. Now, I think there are two major reasons we don't experience this realm of identity either within us or in the world. First, we are seldom present to what is. And second, we think we know who we are. And that gets in the way of knowing who we are. In both the parable we looked at last week, a treasure hidden in a field, and this one, the treasure and the pearl are found accidentally. Though one person was not looking, the other was. They're still found accidentally. Spiritual, they were spiritual accidents. And the reason we have an intense daily spiritual practice is to make us as spiritually accident-prone as possible. <laughs> Carl Jung said that sadly, the commonest human type is the person who imagines he or she actually is what that person cares to know about him or herself. We suffer so much in life because we imagine that who we think we are is different from what we, who we are, and we suffer because we think things are permanent when they are not. Now, the teaching in this parable, and indeed, I think this is the way to summarize a great teaching of any great spiritual teacher, is that we are to live lives of authentic existence in the world, going about our ordinary lives, and being open always to abandon what the ego wants to seduce us into believing is the focus of life. So I believe it is very important to find the right Jesus. To correctly know his teachings and to lead lives marked by the values found in the Beatitudes and in the Buddhist Eightfold Path. If we are in the Christian tradition, we are always seeking ways to answer in deeper and more personal ways the question, have you found Jesus? That's extremely important. But there is another question. Has Jesus found you? The merchant finds a pearl and does whatever is required to have it. And what Holly has said, you're that pearl. You're that treasure. So the teachings of, of Jesus can be summed up in one phrase. God is love. 
And Jesus reflects this love in a way that few human beings have been able to achieve. Now, I have been a personal counselor to people for 50 years, and I can tell you that every one of us thinks negatively about him or herself. There's something about me that if you really knew, you wouldn't like. There is an old legend that after his death, Judas found himself in the bottom of a deep, slimy pit. And for thousands of years, this is a parable, it's not true. For thousands of years, he wept his repentance. And when the tears were finally spent, he looked up and he saw way, 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 way up, a tiny light, a glimmer of light. And he contemplated that light for another thousand years or so. And then after a while, he began to climb toward it. The walls of the pit were dank and slimy. He kept slipping back down. Finally, with great effort, he nears the top. Then he slips back down, falls all the way to the bottom again. It took him many years to recover. All the time, weeping bitter tears of grief and repentance. And he started to climb again. And after many more falls and efforts and failures, he finally reached the top. And he dragged himself into an upper room where there were 12 people seated around a table. And Jesus says, Judas, we've been waiting for you. We couldn't start until you came. Has Jesus found you? No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch yourself, and we will see you here next Sunday. Okay, are you good? I sure can.